0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Thoughts May Vary. Today, it is just me, but only for the introduction. Nobody fret. Meadow was here for the actual episode, but I'm taking over just for the intro, which I don't know why Is I'm being tasked to do this because my voice is off. I was at a wedding. I was doing big things last weekend, Okay but that's neither here nor there because let me tell you about the incredible guest that we have today. I'm so excited to welcome back Dr. Sam Zand to the show. If you have not heard his first episode, we will link all of that in the show notes. So be sure to listen to that episode as well. But let me tell you about this incredible, incredible man. Dr. Sam Zand is a practicing psychiatrist who has trained over a hundred clinicians in holistic mental health. He teaches psychedelic medicine and holistic psychiatry at UNLV As the founder of Anywhere Clinic and Calm Clinic, Dr. Zand has utilized his John Hopkins public health training to help deliver insurance-covered, compassionate mental health care in over 10 states. Today, we dug into his holistic and integrative approach to psychiatry, the value of integrating spirituality into our healing, understanding harm reduction, and how we can all be better in our society in order to help those who need mental health support, how psychedelic assisted medicine can have incredible healing properties. And we also talked about the future of medicine and mental health and where that intersects and just so much more. This is such a jam-packed, incredible episode. We're so grateful to you, Dr. Sam, for coming back on the podcast. You are welcome anytime. Please enjoy today's episode with Dr. Sam Sand. I'm Meadowlark. And I'm Gabriela. And this is Thoughts May Vary. The podcast that sits at the intersection of mental health, nuance, and community.
1: And we're grateful you're here. And that's
0: me. That's just a little bit about us. Yeah. And. Is that gimmicky (laughs) enough for the people? Dr. Sam. Welcome back. Welcome to the podcast. Back. Thank you for being here again.
2: Appreciate it. We had a great conversation last time. So I'm happy to dive back in and really hopefully peel back some more layers and get to the more depths of what's going on in the world and our mental, emotional, and spiritual health.
0: Oh, yeah. We really only scratched Same. the surface. And we've been talking about it since since that conversation that we need to do this again. So we're happy to be back to able to dive in. You also deeper. have the
1: most grounding podcast voice yeah. of all time. So <laughs> I'm so excited to just <laughs> listen to you yeah. today. <laughs>
2: Thank you. It definitely helps when I'm doing therapy, especially hypnotherapy.
0: Oh my God, I bet. (laughs) You were a radio host in a past life, truly. Yeah, truly. So we start off every episode, which you know because you've been here, but we ask all of our guests to let us know what they're currently unpacking. So, what are you currently unpacking today?
2: That's an interesting question. So, I have been knee deep in social media. I've always had boundaries around social media to you know, not let it affect my mental and emotional health, Mm -hmm. but very intentionally this month, I've been on Instagram and Reddit, different channels, communicating with everybody just answering questions that pertain to mental health, bringing up discussion topics with the intention of just trying to educate. And I've been learning a lot and really unpacking that Mm. has been a little bit difficult at first. Uh, Just seeing that we have a lot of narrative in our culture around mental health that Regardless of how it started, and I'd love to talk about the history there too, but we're at a place where it's confusing and people are debating whether diagnostics are real, whether medications actually help us or hurt us. And there's so much polarity and division, I think, in this topic that I'm still unpacking Mm -hmm. how to hold my voice in a way that's neutral and still loving and empowering, but knowing that some of the things that I want to say educationally might be received in a way that's defensive, in a way that Mm shifts the identity and uh, understanding that some people have of themselves. And so I understand that that can be a little disruptive and I'm really just trying to figure out and unpack how to communicate with the masses in a way that is getting education across is, is the ultimate goal.
1: That's well said. The second before you joined, truly, I turned to Gabby and was like, oh, Dr. Sam has been top of mind for me because I saw Rich Roll, whose podcast I love, post a reel with an interview of someone basically saying alcohol has no health benefits whatsoever and no one should be doing it and blah, blah, blah. And I, you are in the comments really lovingly and fairly providing kind of like a harm reduction response and opening space for nuance. And I was telling Gabby, it was so cool to watch you do that. And I saw your name pop up and I was like, oh yes, we've been wanting to talk to him again. Like, let me reach out. But from the outside looking in one, you've done a fabulous job. And two, I really resonate with that because even just having a podcast, we have had to learn that. Like (laughs) words can often fail us. And then the way we can bring up topics, especially like these topics, you're holding a mirror to someone else and things that can feel objective are not because we all have an experience of mental health. So it it really lands differently for everyone. So I, I resonate with what you're saying.
2: What I've seen on that topic really is a lot of charged discussions around... ADHD, around substances, around the narrative that I'm trying to capture and help people understand is we don't know everything about the brain, right? Nobody's claiming we know everything about the brain. It's such a wild frontier of medicine that to have conclusive statements that are 100% science, it's very hard to do that in in our industry in psychiatry and mental health. And so how can we be more open to just different perspectives? And a recent post that I got involved in, and again, this is this is affecting my mental health a little bit, so I'm putting a, a, an end on how much I'm diving into these comments. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But a recent one that caught some controversy was an ADHD post that said there was an article claiming that two hours of phone use can cause ADHD, and everybody was just upset about the fact that someone's claiming you can catch ADHD or it can be caused by electronics. Mm. And my comment was simply that there is a genetic predisposition. We assume, we hypothesize. We don't know 100%, but we think the data is pretty consistent on that side. But that's a small piece of the puzzle. And if we overfocus on the genetics and we're discounting all of the other things that go into something like ADHD, which there's so many other physical components. There's so many psychological components. There's so many environmental factors. But what I'm understanding is the narrative is you either have to be born with it or not. And then these other things maybe bring it out of you, but you have to have been born mm. with it. And that's really hard for me to digest in this space as a psychiatrist and an educator, because I, I don't want to say I disagree because I don't think we should be debating who's right or wrong. But I think there's another perspective that we only created these diagnostics recently, according to a diagnostic to statistic manual. And we've seen rampant numbers of increase in diagnostics because of it, which the science says, yeah, like you start to look for something, you're going to see more of it. I don't think that's enough though to explain why this is such a societal problem. When I'm doing the work, seeing thousands and thousands of patients and they come in complaining about poor focus, ADHD-like symptoms, we don't really have too many other differentials on the list. You know, we are taught and we teach our providers to look for trauma-based manifestations that are causing a difficulty in focus and concentration we look for anxiety that might be misunderstood as i can't focus but really i'm just so uneasy and anxious Mm -hmm. all of these differentials are still speaking from a platform that says you have to pick a diagnosis and you have to put Mm -hmm. somebody in that label and what if we Mm -hmm. just unearthed whole new way of approaching our mental health that has nothing to do with calling someone what a diagnostic is and connecting with the treatment, but just saying, let's understand ourselves more holistically from all of the factors combined, and then move away from feeling like we need to prove that we are or aren't something, right? It's like change the whole discussion from proving whether or not we should have an identity instead just realize we're all connected and the human experience is very similar as a collective consciousness that we can live in that space and that space is not polarizing it's not divisive it's warm it's loving it's empathetic to self it's respectful of science it's not disregarding science it's just opening up the bridge between science and the unknown and feeling okay with the uncertainty that's really what i'm trying to voice for the community and ADHD came up today where people are just telling me, like, I need to go read more books and stuff.
1: Oh, gosh. <laughs> and,
2: you know, and I'm listening, okay. right? I'm listening. Like, why are they saying right, that? Yeah. What am I missing that society has been taught that now we have to unlearn a little bit? So this, this has been yeah. on the tip of my mind, yeah.
0: Do you think there is, from your perspective, a, a good thing that comes from mental health diagnosis that give people some sort of relief? Around that, because I know that I've heard that of like having a solution yeah. and something like presented in front of you that you're like, oh, okay, it's not just in mm-hmm. my head, like this is what it is. What yeah. is your perspective on that side of it? I've,
2: I've heard some people say, We've worked so hard to reverse the stigma, and now you're just saying, you none know, of this is real, you know, like we're fighting to for people to understand this is an illness. And I get that perspective. And I think for some people, it gives them a sense of relief, like, wow. There's something bigger at play here that I don't understand, and mm-hmm. it's not my fault, right? And I think that's healthy, right? We don't want to tell anybody it's your fault what you're feeling, but we want to also not lose that it's your ownership. It's it's within your agency to control a lot of this, and it's not 100% out of your control because that doesn't feel empowering, and then what are we really doing in a mental health industry, right? Because if mm-hmm. it was that simple, 100% genetic... And we would have a medication that fits that. We would have CRISPR coming in and saying, CRISPR is solving ADHD. You know, like that's not happening in the near future. And so we need to broaden our horizons while maintaining a sense of empathy for self and not feeling like, you know, oh, I just need to tough it out, right? Because that's the narrative that we were getting away from over the last few decades. Uh I don't want to get back to that narrative. Like, just tough it out. And that's not it either. Just learn to love yourself, explore yourself, understand why you show up certain ways in certain circumstances and most importantly that the way you show up is not static right we're not just this binary version we're either this way or that way there's so much in between we're dynamic we're always changing our circumstances our life situation all of that can propel us and i think if we stick too stringently to diagnostic criteria we're giving people a life sentence and it's not that right it's, mm-hmm. it's not a disability mm-hmm. it's more like a cast when you're getting mental health treatment you just need you your emotions need a little support just like a broken bone needs support but then we look to take yeah. the cast off and for some people they need longer rehabilitation and that's okay too but for most situations outside of like schizophrenia and severe bipolar mm-hmm. mania and some other things This is not a life sentence you know we're understanding we're approaching mental health i hope from a more loving place when we see it less as a rigid diagnostic criteria
0: have you seen the documentary heal
2: of course one of my favorites okay
0: yeah so for anyone listening it talks a lot about just the the mental health component in illnesses and they follow different cancer patients and so one of the things that i took away from that was one of the doctors saying accept the diagnosis but reject the prognosis. And I feel mm. like that's sort of what we're talking about here and I know I like that you mentioned that there's obviously certain things that people may deal with whether it's bipolar disorder or schizophrenia that like there there's a little less maybe nuance in that but I think mm. you know with certain medical conditions or things that I've personally experienced I know that when I'll catch myself often just recommitting to limiting beliefs. Like for example, I have PCOS. So many women have PCOS and I'll catch myself a lot being like, oh, this happens in my body, or I can't do that because I have PCOS because I have PCOS. And then I'm just automatically limiting myself. Whereas I think the healthier approach, at least for me has been to be like, okay, I have an understanding of what I have. Having this diagnosis has been really helpful for me because it's, removed a level, a level of wild frustration. So this mm. is helpful to have this information and these tools. Now I don't need to live my everyday life, limiting myself to every single bullet point that is under the PCOS category, because that's not how I'm moving. That's not how it might be manifesting in myself. So I love that you're providing a level of nuance where multiple truths can exist mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's such a powerful example that things can coexist, right? We live in a world that's so polarized politically, socioeconomically. I mean, look at your, you know, people, how crazy and obsessed they get over their favorite sports team. And I was there. Like, I was that sports fanatic who would get in fights when I was younger. Like, What am I doing? <laughs> We're so polarized. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, my journey's it's been not always peaceful. <laughs> uh, but, you know, seeing the polarity in society, which I've been a part of in my life as well, What if we just shifted that and Mm. understand that things can coexist, right? You can be depressed and have a nice day and and enjoy yourself. You can feel depressed today and not feel like you're stuck in this for the rest of your life. Grief Mm -hmm. comes out a lot. People come to me and, you know, they've been grieving. I can't get past losing so-and-so, I feel guilt, I feel if I go out and enjoy myself, there's just no interest, why would I do that? You know, I'm supposed to be sad. Mm-hmm. And sadness can coexist with honoring someone and remembering them. Grief can coexist with having fun. It's okay to do both. Yeah. And So I think language is limiting, and the more that we zoom out from the cognitive uh, analytical mind and we get back into the somatic yeah. being, then... We learn to not be limited by words. We just learn that it's a tool that has limitations just like any other tool.
1: I love that example. I literally just shared recently uh, something I wrote about the first day I went through having like a gorgeous, beautiful day that I didn't think of my dad who had passed when I was 17 and the guilt that was immediately came with that. And then quickly after realizing that the best way to serve him is to like live in that love and come with memories and do all that. So I like that example, but I could get wrapped up in grief and I don't want to because in in response to some of your social media commenters, I find you to be one of the most refreshing and intriguing voices in this space ever. Like you are the antithesis of this kind of classic psychiatrist that doesn't make eye contact, that has the five-minute appointment with you and walks (laughs) by, you, sends you the meds and walks away. Like you are radically shifting that to be so holistic and integrative and frankly, spiritual and just so fucking cool. And I want to dig into that journey a little bit from the sports yeah. fighting boy to how yeah. you kind of came to this very holistic and integrative approach to medicine. Like it's so fascinating yeah. to me.
2: Yeah. Thank you for the kind words. And it's very intentional. We teach this curriculum this way, right? We want people to understand. That when you're reaching out, when, when someone's reaching out for mental health support, the first thing we need to give them is compassion, is time, yeah. is a sense of security and safety mm-hmm. so that they can be vulnerable, so that they can continue to open up and feel safe. Because many times people come to us and it's a negotiation at the gate. It's their last doctor was telling them they can't be on the meds, that they know, you know, I know what's good for my body, my doctor doesn't know, right? And some docs will just say, hey... I went to school, you didn't, right? This is what's right and wrong. And mm-hmm. we meet people where they are. Like, we understand that this is what's going on in your body right now. We're going to meet you there and warmly guide you to a healthier place. And if you're not ready to hear that yeah. education today, that's okay. I'm not going to beat you over the head with it today. Right? I'm just going to meet you where you are. And until I can convince you that I actually care about you. And then my words yeah. will hold more weight, right? Because in the beginning, there's this distrust sometimes with doctors, with medicine, with pharmaceuticals, all of that. So where did the journey start? I mean, I, I really like to go backwards into where we came from, not just me personally, but our industry in psychiatry, see where we started, to understand where we are and where we're headed. And psychiatry is only 100 years old, you know, compared to cardiology is three or 400 years old. Other studies of medicine have been going on for much longer than psychiatry. It's one of our newest fields. And what did we do before psychiatry was a field? Right, we went to
1: bloodletting.
2: Yeah, like horrific,
1: horrific solutions?
2: Sure, (laughs) sure. I mean, the lobotomy was 1949. It was invented. It wasn't a long time ago. And oh my god, both of our dads were born. (laughs) Our
1: dads were like ten. Yeah, yeah. Right. This is an ancient
2: history. (laughs) Uh, The psychiatrist who invented the lobotomy was a Portuguese uh, man who won a Nobel Prize for it. He was literally taking, like, etching out pieces of the brain through the eye socket. And we thought that was how you solve mental health, right? The mortality rate was 14%. One in seven people died from that, and he won a Nobel Prize. So if we go to that time in society, in the 40s, what was going on where a man who's killing one out of seven people for medical treatment was given a Nobel Prize? It's because in society, the alternative wasn't any better. It was tying them right. into you know a psych ward, putting them in a rubber room. If you rewind, ECT was invented in the 1900s where we mm-hmm. were electrocuting people. And it's not what it is today with neurostimulation. It was mm-hmm. much more mm-hmm. barbaric back then. Keep going Women backwards. Women with hysteria
1: and hysteria the sexual abuse were, that comes yeah. from that, that. We should get into that later. Please keep going. Oh, yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. I think there's so much that we overlooked and limited because the diagnostics at the time said, if you present this way, you have hysteria. what do we overlook? Sexual abuse, neglect, trauma, all of the things that we shouldn't just limit to one term hysteria or not, right? There's so much more that goes on. So keep going backwards. Religion was a big part of mental health. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to the point where sometimes it was, you know, you need an exorcism, right? The devil's inside you. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it was the mind and the spirit are connected. They're not separate entities. And that's what many cultures and religions feel. Um, going backwards, we would go to nature. We would go to shamanistic approaches, right? Psychedelic medicine, things of that nature, plant medicine. We would go to our elders in the community for advice. So now mm-hmm. what do we do? We're going through something and we call a therapist, we call a psychiatrist, or or we don't, right? We go maybe our primary care provider. And we're being told all right, here's what you're going through, right? You suffer from this, or you suffer from that. This We've only been doing that for 50 years.
1: Yeah.
2: Because of that, then in the 80s, we start marketing psychotropics, right? Where in the mm-hmm. 50s, when you invent an antipsychotic, it's much better than chiseling away a piece of the frontal lobe through the eye socket. But oh my God. to take that same approach, <laughs> right, to take that same – and the original antipsychotics were also terrible. They had tons of side effects. Oh, yeah. They're much better than the alternative. Even
1: early 2000s antipsychotics.
2: Yeah. It leads to what we call tardive dyskinesia where you get this shaking yep. and these yes. irregular movements, tons of yeah. metabolic issues. But the drugs are getting better, right? They're getting less side effects, more uh, efficacy. Right. But what happened in the 80s is all of a sudden Prozac became this – quick fix, the happy pill. And do you know who mm. owned Prozac? The same people who were marketing Viagra. So now you have two happy pills and it's really the I same never marketing I knew plan. that. We've seen now all the documentaries about the pain drugs and the reps that were pushing that. And, you know, opiate medication, as an example, it was totally normal in the nineties, mm-hmm. right? It wasn't like this, mm-hmm. what it is today, where we understand how deadly it can be. So you look at Now we have a pill to solve mental health solutions. And then me as a psychiatrist in training, I remember at Johns Hopkins, I studied public health and I took a psychiatry course. And this isn't you know, evolved, working on myself, me. This is young, rebellious me. And (laughs) I think I got like a C minus in my psychiatry class at Johns Hopkins (laughs) because I was showing up to learn how to help people and learn more about mental health. And all Uh I learned was diagnostic criteria and statistics and it was Mm -hmm. jading when I went to med school and residency we weren't learning things that I was noticing an impactful change on my patients and this you know just to say like I had one of the best mentors ever Dr. Mm. Gregory Brown at UNLV would teach us energy medicine he would teach us hypnotherapy he would teach us all these holistic um, outlets Mm -hmm. but even so one I was too young to really get that at the time Mm. but two It wasn't the first thing taught it was like an elective class oh by the way if you want Mm -hmm. to look at this right but first learn the meds and this is how we practice so if we understand that's where we came from where are we going i think we're learning that you know it just hasn't worked 20 30 years of throwing meds at people where maybe 10 to 30 percent are getting better why are we continuing in those efforts and we're seeing you know everybody wants to hate on I know we're on a podcast here, so I'll say big Parma, but you know, I'm not, <laughs>
1: the big I'm not a big
2: Parma. yeah, I like, I like Parmesan. Like I'm, I, I, yeah. you know, I, I use their products. I, I speak for a lot of big cheese manufacturers, you know, like
1: uh-huh. The, uh-huh.
2: I don't think they're the evil that we're painting them to be. They're just a capitalistic endeavor. Right. And mm. now they're seeing that Some of these holistic, neuroplastic, glutaminergic approaches are helping people more. And all the money is going there. No more money is going into SSRIs. We don't have any Mm -hmm. more single serotonin meds in the pipeline. Right. This is ancient technology wow. now. So I'm excited about the future of Big Parma <laughs> and all mm-hmm. of the future you know, products they're going to come out with. If they follow the money and if we as the consumer give our money to the providers and the treatments that are actually helping us, things that are cutting edge like neurostimulation and ketamine therapy and MDMA therapy might come out this year, then they're going to chase after that too. So seeing where we were to where we are now and where we're going in the future for me it's more optimistic.
0: Yeah, we wanted to dive more also into talking about cultural and societal patterns and how yeah. those have impacted the rate if impacted the rate of drug use, loneliness, depression and if there's like a correlation sort of between those and I would love for you to maybe identify some of those patterns and cultural I guess cultural and societal yeah. patterns that exist and then if they're Are any steps that we could actively take as individuals that will impact the collective?
2: Mm. What a beautiful question. I really love this topic. If we start again going through history, I think we learn the most from what we've seen in patterns in the past. If you look at drug culture through time, the predominant drug over the majority of human existence has been alcohol, and alcohol wasn't used primarily just to get drunk and have a good time, it was a preservation of clean water. It was used to hydrate, which science has taught us is probably not the best option. But you have a little bit of alcohol, it keeps water clean. And that's how we were hydrating as a society. So if you follow three things, what we drink, what we smoke, and what we're given through medicine, I think you really see cultural shifts in, in the way that drugs influence and impact society at large. And this is a really fascinating story. So we used to be all farmers, right? Past the hunter and gatherer stage, we started to create kind of communities and we started to farm. And that was a huge, huge part of our human experience. And farming led, lend itself to kind of drinking, right? Like you, you hydrate with your alcoholic, whatever it is, whether it's a beer or a wine or just a very low percentage alcohol, but it keeps you hydrated, keeps the water clean. And farming makes sense, right? You're enjoying the sun, you're outside, you're having a brew Then, all of a sudden, we changed the way in which we purified water, and we started to boil it, and we started to have tea and coffee much more commonly in society, and caffeine became a very predominant drug. And A lot of people credit that change from alcohol to caffeine, largely in society, to the uh, start of the Industrial Revolution where it's like, let's get out of the farms now and let's get into the factories. Let's get busy. What does the caffeine do mm. for us? <laughs> it gets us going.
1: Mm-hmm. Amped up. And so, yeah. Right?
2: And so if you look at those two examples, what we're drinking really influenced the way that we were functioning in society. What we're smoking, I think, matters a lot too. Even tobacco, nicotine, it's another stimulant. right? It gets us going. It fits right into that industrial revolution. It fits into saturating cities and being busy, that New York City kind of lifestyle what are we smoking now? Most states have made legal marijuana, right? And marijuana has been around forever, but it's probably the highest prevalence it's ever been because it's capitalized and and, in a free economy where you can just access it. So what's happening? Well, we're not working as much as we used to, right? Like marijuana kind of calms you down a little bit. And where does that shift? Us. We've isolated. On top of COVID, you have all these states giving out legal marijuana. Now we're used to being more introvert. We're used to being maybe a little analytical. We're used to being inside. We're used to not getting out as much. It's not certainly as social of a drug as alcohol was. And so you see those trends and you think, all right, what else are we consuming as a society over time? Um, the medicines that were given in prescribed meds, If you remember quaaludes and the scene in the movies and all these really heavy things, we used to give out. I mean, before we even get into medication, cocaine was in Coca Cola, right? That's where it came from. Like that was a stimulant that we put into our products and mass consumerized. What are we drinking now? Corn fructose syrup, right? Chemicals and fake sugars and artificial sweeteners. And what's that doing to society? It's making us a little bit unhealthy. Right? Obese slows, mm-hmm. slows us down. It impacts and increases depression and anxiety because you know, all that inflammation in the body. And this is not on an individual basis, this is on a societal basis. So if you go now right. into prescription drugs, we were giving out, you know, things like morphine and heroin and opiates, um, very, very largely in the nineties. In the seventies, eighties, it was used for operations and things of that nature. In the nineties, it was just used for pain. And if you have pain, this is a solution. What has that done? We've seen, you know, tons of disability go up. Right, you can be now hooked on an opiate and file for disability and get paid for that. And I, and I have empathy for that population. I'm not judging that population at all. But if you look at the societal trend, now we're giving methamphetamine to children, to our athletes, to our hard workers, to people who really want to do their best and be their best. A lot of them are falling into this niche of, well, I'm, I got diagnosed ADHD and a doctor gave me this amphetamine derivative and it feels great. Now I'm productive. Where are we shifting? We're now seeing a lot more psychedelics and it's opening our mind and it's expanding consciousness in a time that I think is so necessary and so needed. Whereas mm-hmm. right now, one in six or seven people are on antidepressants. They say one in four doctor visits and any specialty ends with a benzo prescription, like a Xanax or a Clonopin. What if pretty soon one out of two or one out of three or one out of four people had a psychedelic therapy clinician guided experience? We have all of this tension in the world. Right? We saw this in the 60s and the government wanted to shut it down. So now we're going through this cycle again. And I think the conversation needs to be less about drugs are bad, which was what we were all raised on, right? Dare, say no to drugs, all those campaigns, to Drugs are not good or bad. Let's get rid of the polarizing conversation and just say everything we put in our body has a potential benefit and a potential risk. And without casting judgment, we can make that evaluation. Me as a physician, as a psychiatrist, that's my job is to sit with someone and say, let's talk about drugs as one option, one of many. And let's go over the benefits and the risks. And so we're at a point where I think many of us are holding on to medication because of chemical dependence, because doctors put it into our regimen and we didn't realize now we're stuck on it. We're holding on to it because we want to be our best self. And we were taught we got to take this to be our best self. And we're neglecting so many other facets. Um, And we're just shaming people, right? The posts about alcohol. I wasn't on Instagram to say alcohol is good or I wasn't there to say that all of the facts we're seeing about alcohol, that it's causing cancer or that it's causing problems, that that's wrong. No, like, there's science there, there's research there and I support that. If you want to live your healthiest life, you probably shouldn't have alcohol in, in your diet. Um, however, what's the truth? If we're meeting society where they are, we're not meeting a society who's never had alcohol. We're meeting a society mm-hmm. who's largely ingrained in alcohol as a social custom. That's So normalized. Mm -hmm. And so rather than Mm -hmm. shaming it and telling people it's bad, why don't we just educate and understand, well, what are the potential benefits and what are the potential risks and how does that affect me individually? That's where I think this conversation needs to shift towards.
1: It's so interesting. I think of every, I mean, one, I just resonate with everything you're saying. And two, I think of drug use that has been so stigmatized, that's so hard to go through, that has all this nuance attached to it, like people in my family and the community that my husband still serves of like unhoused folks that also experience severe mental illness. And it's almost like this chicken or an egg scenario of your mental health was so bad. We gave you the drugs, but now the drug effect is so bad that like, you can't even parcel them out from each other. And couple that with existing in survival mode or extreme poverty or being unhoused, you don't even have the space to think about your mental health because you're thinking about like, where am I going to sleep tonight and will I be safe? So it, it becomes so such an easy excuse to throw a Prozac to someone like that to think, oh, let's help them not think they're in survival mode to move up. But it, it, it's just not a real solution. And I know we spoke a little bit previously about how plant medicine is a different drug alternative into like helping alleviate these issues. So I'm wondering if we like even scale this back to just people in survival mode. Like how do you see this kind of like new age wave of either plant medicine or this like holistic psychiatry yeah. as a whole, helping affect people that don't even know where they're sleeping tonight.
2: Maslow's as well as hierarchy of needs, yeah. like you've got to maintain yeah. your comforts, your security, your food, your shelter, your societal uh connection which we we forget about that one too um i think that the paradigm is changing whereas before i, I still work in many um, community centers homeless centers and who am i to come to someone who's hasn't had a meal in days and has sleep insecurity and say like hey take this prozac and in a month you're gonna feel better like that just doesn't fit that doesn't make sense and but it Only if it's the paradigm in which we were taught. What if instead there's a paradigm that says, let's sit together for two hours and check in once a week or once a month and go through a neuroplastic shift in our brain. So we're still using medicine to do something on a neurochemical basis, but instead of increasing serotonin, increasing dopamine, we're actually improving the way the brain communicates with itself, creates new pathways, fertilizing it to be healthier so that you can cope with the stress you're going through in a healthier way you don't need to do this every day. And it's not a passive experience. It's not just throw the pill in and check it down. And Mm -hmm. now it's on to the next task. You sit with yourself and you check in. That experience is also very different from therapy because in therapy, we're sitting together. We're having a cognitive discussion and we're talking out loud, but in this paradigm shift in which we're maybe doing once weekly or once monthly psychedelic experiences, we are going through a somatic experience, somatic meaning of the body we're having a visceral, a, a feelings experience. We're being rather than thinking or talking and analyzing. And when we can move from that analytical brain to just being, then we're no longer in that survival mode, right? Our nervous system is yeah. better regulated. We get out of fight or flight. And now we can actually have healthy conversations. Whereas if somebody's in survival mode and they come to me for therapy and I just start having them talk about their traumas and stressors, I'm only heightening their fight or flight response, mm-hmm right? Meeting them where they are and then trying to calm them back down rather than saying, let's not talk. You know, can we start with a hug? Start with some breath work. Can we start with just being with our body and being here together and knowing that I'm here to care for you? Let's not say a word for a minute or two. I do that often in my therapy sessions when I notice someone's getting really agitated with themselves, right? With their traumas, with their past. I'll just slow down. I'll just take a deep breath. I won't say anything. And I'll just let them sit with themselves, and then I'll encourage them to connect with their breath. And then we'll get back into the conversation. And now we're having healthy therapeutic conversation, whereas before, if I continued in that pattern, I'm actually only damaging them further.
1: How did you learn the art of space holding? Like, was that also with this mentor or in school? Because you have a very different approach than what is taught in school.
2: Thank you. I think that uh, Dr. Brown is a fantastic... Teacher and mentor, and he definitely taught us a lot of these skills. What we learned in residency, me selectively, what I learned in residency, I was trying to you know not pay attention to a lot of things I didn't agree with. But what I really learned was how to deal with my emotional state when in an mm. uncomfortable situation with the patient. We call that countertransference. And
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, in therapy and psychology, it's the same thing, right? If someone brings up a trauma in their life that strikes a chord of a trauma that you had in your life. All of a sudden, you're not fully present to them because you were triggered. Mm -hmm. And I think four years of residency, more than anything that I learned, was how to get past feeling triggered in session and instead being fully present to the person that I'm with. The most important part of my day is when I'm with my patients because I get to not focus on myself at all. And that's so uplifting for me. It's so soothing and healing for me. And I learned that over practice. There was one patient when I started my career early who she came in And she was waiting in the waiting room. This was at a community center. Um, She was visibly upset. I think she was waiting a long time. We had a big wait that day. She came in and just started cursing at me, just unleashing, just F-bombs. You don't care about me, F you. You told me to go see a therapist and she fell asleep on me. And I'm going through her history and understanding she had dealt with, she's dealing with cancer. And she's coming Mm -hmm. for mental health support and being told to wait. She's coming for therapy and someone's falling asleep. And my blood's boiling, right? Empathy didn't lead the way Mm -hmm. for me that day. I was triggered. Uh This woman is yelling at me about five feet from my face. And internally, I told myself, keep showing love. Keep loving her. This is the challenge. Like Mm -hmm. This is what you trained for, to take this animosity and digest it and regurgitate it back with love. And, you know, right. And she look, she didn't change that day. It's not like she's like, oh, my God, this guy yeah. didn't continue. To, but I changed. that. But
1: you did. Yeah. Right? And yeah. that
2: ripple effect to then be able to continue being there for her and other people like her. Holding space just became an experience, a, a trained lesson through experiences like that.
1: That is so Ram Dass coded. I'm obsessed. <laughs> I love that. I did a, I did a Ram Dass meditation yesterday. That was that. It was the, how can you bring pain into your heart and alchemize it into love and send it back out? Like that is such a, beautiful and that is a hard skill. Like, don't let me uh, allow me to not say that flippantly. Like that's something that I still try to work on all the time, even in just consulting or whoever I'm talking to. But I, I've, been grateful enough to experience that similar like flow and just how much better you feel when you really are present and tapped into hold a mirror and not let any of your stuff be there. Like that is just such a beautiful way to can, it leaves you feeling so much more connected than like going to a happy hour or I don't know. I just, I've never had more of a greater sense of community from practicing that.
2: Right, right. We think about how we can impact the other person, but I think we overlook how much that impacts us.
1: Yes. We do a yeah, lesson yeah. on
2: time orientation thinking, or how much of our thoughts are stuck in the past where we tend to get depressed, mm. how much of our thoughts are stuck in the future where we tend to get anxious, and how much of our thoughts are in the present where we find fulfillment. And the mm-hmm. more we can enrich ourselves with activities to be present to one another, to ourselves, to the world around us. Fulfillment goes up, right? And that's that's just not taught in yeah. mental health or psychiatry, right? It's taught oh, through yeah. philosophers and mm-hmm.
1: memes. Right? And, <laughs>
2: <Death>. <laughs> <yeah>. and <sighs> you know, but why aren't we incorporating that kind of education more so in our therapeutic work? And so to be present to someone else and really connect to a definition of spirituality, that there's something more important in life than ourselves is one of the most cleansing feelings that I remind myself I will never give that up, right? I don't want to retire and stop seeing patients because I will lose that, let alone the gift of being able to give back to
0: others. Three very different topics just popped into (laughs) my brain. So I'm going to take them one at a time. (laughs) I mean, the, the through line of empathy and meeting each other where we're at and seeing each other on a human to human basis just has me thinking so much about the way that we read about harm reduction in the media. And Mm. I would love to have more of that conversation for people because I don't fully understand it. And I know there's a lot of people that don't fully understand when we see, you know, here are free, clean needles and the way that it's, you know, publicized in the media. And I was just wondering if there's anything that you can offer, a perspective you can offer us to help understand how there's a difference between harm reduction and enabling somebody's addiction.
2: Enabling would be ignoring, neglecting, acknowledging, but allowing something to continue, right? And usually it's done passively, not proactively, um, because we're we're not meeting that difficulty head on. We're not trying to go Mm -hmm. through it. We're trying to go around it. Where harm reduction, I think, is meeting someone where they are with empathy and with love and understanding and understanding that if we tell them not to do the thing, if we make them out to be bad, if we judge them and shame them, I mean, it doesn't take a rock scientist or a psychiatrist to understand that that's, that's not going to be a healthy motivation for that person. Right. If I tell you right now, don't think of an elephant, like what are you doing, <laughs> right? You're thinking of an elephant, <laughs> right? But if uh-huh. I said think of a giraffe, well, then you're going to think of a giraffe. And by doing that, you didn't think of an elephant. And so if we tell someone not to do something, this is like child psychiatry, child psychology 101, right? We need to use words very intentionally to guide people to where we think that, you know, as a parent – what's healthy for them to be, for ourselves and our self-talk, what's healthy for us to think. And if we constantly tell ourselves, don't do something, well, the craving is going to go up. The attention will go there. So harm reduction says, I'll go to your extreme example of giving clean needles. In Canada, they do this very openly with the heroin community. It's mm-hmm. come in, you get a free needle. But it's not just that. You get care, right? You get a bridge towards understanding why you're at this place that you're at, building motivation towards finding something healthier for yourself and a continuity to get you there. And so harm reduction isn't just giving someone a free needle and say, have at it? It's meeting them with that needle because you know that if they don't take that clean needle, they will likely have a Mm -hmm. dirty one or at least a clean one Mm -hmm. without any love, empathy, or communication and education attached Mm -hmm. to it. One of the things that I work with a lot of people in the recovery space, I've, I've been medical director of several rehabs, um, I have a dear friend of mine who I saw today we went on a hike, Darren Waller, who's a huge advocate in the recovery space as a professional athlete who speaks openly about his journey and how he went from doing all these different drugs to now cleaning up his sobriety. And one of the conversations I have with him is, what are, you know, what are the thoughts? Let's open a discussion around what seems to be in the recovery community, the solution is sobriety or what right we're all leaning towards sobriety like there hasn't been that many other options to say this is something that maybe we can not demonize right the drug but instead understand self and then the need and the pattern behavior around the drug won't be as present this is where neuroplastic Mm -hmm. therapy comes in we actually use ketamine therapy in the recovery world for someone who's post detox meaning they're not still abusing the substances Mm -hmm. they've already recovered but they're having challenges staying you know, in their sobriety. So with Darren, he's openly talked about how plant medicine, psychedelic journeys, ketamine therapy has helped align his sobriety and strengthen it. And the discussion, Mm -hmm. the challenge I have is, is there ever an appropriate time to not preach sobriety to the recovery community and to really just talk about harm reduction, talk about interacting with drugs in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way? And a lot of that community will say, no, we are addicts. How do you start any AA meeting? Right? I am an addict. It's an admission. Is that the programming that's really helpful to keep reminding ourselves of a perceived illness rather than creating a new pathway? Almost it's like saying, telling someone, don't, look, don't think of an elephant. You know, instead, could we just start talking about what are the harm reduction tactics? What are the ways in which we can interface in a healthy way with what's going on in society, which might be you know, rampant alcohol, marijuana, etc. Um, but that, to me, is the big differentiation: is not just telling someone don't do it, but rather showing them what they should do, and that, that I think differentiates enabling between harm reduction.
1: This, to me, just goes right back to spirituality too, because I think in addition to offering the love and support and education with a free needle, you're also providing with someone to hypothetically live another day to possibly like recover or not. But just the value of that life by offering them another solution, than do it. Like I've seen it firsthand and it just, it does feel like it stems from that place of empathy and value and respect for number, another human life in a way that I mean, I'm, I'm getting big picture and spiritual here, but I don't, uh, It just, it hurts my heart because that, that community is so fucking stigmatized and like so judged and who needs love and support and the, the opportunity to live another day more than that, you know, but Mm. Gabby, please, I'm taking this a hundred places. Go back to your other two remaining
0: topics. Oh, um, well spirituality, but we'll end with that because I'm like, I have so much in there, but we also just, since we were talking about the unhoused community already and, um, just the hierarchy of needs. We know that, well, this is, I mean, the statistic is staggering. I have it written down, but more than 90% of yep. unhoused women yeah. have experienced severe physical or sexual abuse. And I'm curious about how this medicine or psychedelic, psychedelic assisted therapy and medicine can potentially assist in healing from sexual trauma.
2: Let's use uh, sexual trauma as an example to understand the platform on which we would address this, right? As a professional in the mental health space, if the topic we want to process and understand is, you know, what of the sexual abuse that maybe I repressed or didn't tell anybody about or I told someone and they didn't take action and I was at a young age and I feel injustice or neglect, all of these things can come up. Let's look at it through four categories. And this is how I like to simplify things for my patients. Biologically, psychologically, environmentally, and spiritually. Biologically, what happened, right? And and I wouldn't do this on day one. It's like, okay, well, let's you know, sure, just sure. met you, I'm your therapist. Let's dive into this deep. Like, no, this takes time. <laughs> but, um, but on the biological side, you know, there was a physical trauma, right? And and we hold that in our nervous system. Body keeps the score. Everybody's read that book. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a nervous system that it that needs love, that needs relaxation, that needs attention, that needs to be well regulated because of the trauma that impacted us. Physically, how does that actually pertain to our, our sexual health, right? And and that then kind of borders into our relationship health and our environmental health mm-hmm. and the way we've communicated and interacted in romantic and intimate relationships. How has it strengthened us? And that's something I think we overlook. Mm-hmm. Right, because we always go to trauma and we always ask all the negative questions because that's what we're taught to diagnose something. But we all know that trauma breeds resiliency. And while mm-hmm. we're never justifying or okaying what happened, it's our choice to say, I learned, it made me stronger, I learned about injustice in the world and how to process that, the shadow comes up. And so I'm bouncing around. But psychological psychologically it's how do we process from that trauma and the inner child work of it is who was there for us at the time? Were we on this journey alone? Did we have someone who actually really cared and we spoke up to and they were there for us? Did we say something and they neglected that and overlooked it? And that then relates to the way in which we hold um relationships and, and the ability to connect and trust and love and um have you know, either codependency or attachment, detachment issues and all those things that may come up again from a place of objectivity and no shame or judgment, right? We're just Mm -hmm. looking at ourselves as, as we would someone else who's been through something difficult with empathy and care. So then psychologically going through all that, environmentally understanding how that's impacted us. Now spiritually, I tapped into this a little bit. I think when we talk about spirituality, it's really easy for me to bring up these days. Whereas I know a lot of my new practitioners and when I was early in my training, Asking spiritual questions is hard because people get weird and awkward and like mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. conflict that they're holding on to and like why are you asking me this question? But it's just, you know what are your thoughts about the unexplainable things about the world? Why are we here? What happens after we pass? Also, how do we explain the injustices? How do we explain those things mm-hmm. that happen to us that probably shouldn't have in our mind and our perception, but they did? So are we still holding on to resentment or a um, feeling that the world is a scary place? That's a spiritual feeling. My veterans who have gone through tons of difficult things from, you know, having to kill people to seeing people that they care about being killed to a lot of sexual trauma in the veteran community of, you know, any sex or gender. Now I've built a story, a narrative that's I'm serving my country, but then what happened? And I'm now left with this post-trauma residue that nobody's addressing and it leaves the spiritual discord where I lose faith in the world, I lose faith in humanity, I lose faith in a higher being or whatever it is that we align with. Sexual trauma, I think, is a huge unexplored part of it. That's just to open the shadow and say, like, it's okay to feel that this sucks and to feel upset and to feel angry. What are we learning about the world? If we're not learning something about ourselves, then we're learning something about the world. And so that's the way that I think from a high level, we would approach something like sexual trauma and where does now something like psychedelic healing fall into that? Well, the traumas and stories and narratives that we hold, those rigid patterns that the world is not a safe place, that my caretaker wasn't there for me, means they don't love me, means I'm not worthy of love. All these things we hold on to, they're just, it's just a program just running, right? You open your computer and your program's running in the background. What if we could just alt-control delete that program and create a new program? And that's where we're deviating away from this hammer approach of cognitive behavioral therapy, like tell me more about your trauma, I'm like let's get past that. Right, if we just keep circling yeah. through that trauma. It's just making the nervous system response worse. Let's reset it and talk about where we want to land on the other side. What did we learn? What is the story we want to tell ourselves in the future? And many people arrive to make your mess your message. You know, like help others who are going through it, and in that way, purpose becomes. Somewhat obvious, you know, but difficult through the journey. And So I have so much empathy for any population that's been going through a trauma and made to feel like it's not okay to explore it, process it, talk about it, feel bad about it. Mm. Like, let's bring it up and let's have healthy conversations that aren't ruminating on the topic, but they have a destination, a compass, and alignment of where we're shifting and reframing. We can't delete; we can only reformat. Mm-hmm. That's really tying all the work together from a. Physical, psychological, environmental, spiritual place that nothing more I've seen than immersion retreats, being together, having actual communion and touch, um, psychedelic medicine, resetting ourselves, meditation, breath work, really diving into the soul searching part of this. That's where the solutions come.
1: I I have... One fun ending question for us, but before I I skip to that, you kind of touched on this already, but I want to give space for a separate answer outside of the context of just the sexual health example of where do you see the future of spirituality coming into medicine and healing? Or what are your hopes for the way in which we move into this in the future? You've touched on this a little bit, but
2: I think we need more community. You know, the one-on-one is great and I always will see my patients, you know, very often, we get out of these virtual visits and if i'm in town where they are well, i'll say let's go on a hike you know like let's go talk mm-hmm. together we need that touch we need that intimacy together for spirituality to merge with medicine it needs to be both private and intimate but communal and so you know th- those are opposite words right and and i think to merge Holding those two again. things right they can coexist yeah and so Can we be together and respect our intimate, private journeys and support each other together? I would love to one day go to a congregation, church, temple, mosque, whatever it is, and hold space where anyone from any religion can come in and we can just focus on the commonalities, the love, the ethics, the morals, the virtues, and then create private time. Just say, now take your own path your own understanding. And maybe with a community, a sub-community, or just internally with your own understanding of this world, be it God, a higher power, the universe, nature, whatever it is, and hold both of those spaces together. What if mental health professionals started some kind of a new spiritual movement where we're not preaching any doctrine other than mental health messages, you know, and then encouraging people to find their own truths within that?
1: I'll join you in it. That's my (laughs)
2: true. This is my entire
1: life mission statement.
2: Right. But... Degrees of separation from that, you know, we've seen it patterned in the past, turn into cults and turn into abuse and oh, turn yeah. into things, yeah. right? So oh, yeah. it's just, how do we find that integrity to, to do this in a loving, compassionate way that will not be manipulated for alternative benefits? You no, know, I just have faith in the world that continue if we yeah. all continue to put more love out there, the collective consciousness will evolve we'll be able to have these higher level conversations. You know, all the memes about the aliens coming in and just seeing us as like a prehistoric being <laughs> that doesn't understand collective consciousness, right? And we're still at war with each other. What if mm-hmm. in 10, a thousand years, we've evolved communally to realize right. that that reactionary basis, is, it's not the way we should be interacting. And if we lead with love and empathy and understanding, not, we can all have these outlets and, and just thrive and be healthy and be connected.
1: Truly my hope too. And you help give me that hope because my goodness, again, one of the most refreshing voices in the space, truly. So because of that, I'd like to end on a very selfish question, which is when I meet people that I respect and admire and value their voice in the field, my favorite thing to ask is what are your self-care non-negotiables? What are you doing? Quotidian details every single day. What's your how? How do you stay grounded, connected to source in this space, able to serve others, like Tell me, walk me through the whole routine, please.
2: If I can highlight probably just the most important ones. There's a lot that, you know, non-negotiable doesn't mean we you know, we follow in that path every day, right? We all deviate
1: oh, from yes. our best yeah, self, absolutely. but
2: the ones that I would highlight as the most important that I try to really hit that 100% clip on, the first is being present to my breath. And that might sound so silly or nuanced for someone who isn't in breath work, who hasn't done this and practiced it. but. To go from someone who used to have road rage and get in silly fights when I was mm-hmm. younger to learn that just taking a breath can change the outcome of everything. Like that mm-hmm. has now become innate for me. That patient who mm-hmm. wants to scream at me, which still happens, right? Everybody has a tough day. The first thing I do before anything is take a deep breath and I don't even notice I'm doing it anymore. It just is a reflex. So I think mm-hmm. building the habit of. Taking those long, exaggerated breaths has become innate, not even to the point where I have to call it a non-negotiable because it's just part of my being and part of my you know, daily practice, uh, just stress response. And I think we can all can learn that. Um, and then nighttime routines. A lot of people talk about morning routines, and I value that as well. But I want to focus on the nighttime routine because there's neuroscience coming in that says while we turn off the conscious mind and we go to sleep, our subconscious mind is still running. That computer is still Mm -hmm. on. So what you're Mm -hmm. feeding it, the programming right before going to bed, it is continuing for however long you're asleep. So I'm very Mm -hmm. intentional to have pleasant thoughts before bedtime, never go to sleep angry Mm -hmm. with my partner. Even if I'm upset at her, she's upset at me, we will make up before going to bed. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I'm feeling stressed or anxious about the day, and I can't solve the problem. I'll just trick myself and start thinking about something else that that's you know nice and pleasant. Because going to sleep with positive thoughts, with um, thoughts that will carry you forward. If if you if I was to tell you, you can invest five minutes, and your body will give you another five to ten of work. You just have to focus on that mm-hmm. five minutes. That's a tool I think all of us would use if we knew that to be true. And I think neuroscience is teaching us that it is. There's studies coming out where people are thinking about exercising before going to bed, and they're testing them without any exercise and seeing more strength and endurance because of the neuroplastic connections that are happening in the body when we go to sleep. So everybody take a deep breath, make it part of your stress response habit, and program the last five nights before you go to bed very intentionally to be in thoughts that you want to continue while
1: you're asleep oh i love that is it true sorry to ask you for an ending question and follow up is it true that our subconscious mind thinks in photos because i find visualizations to be excuse my dog so yummy and supportive and so i try to do as i fall asleep oh my goodness please as i fall asleep i try to do a lot of visualization with that positive energy to keep that going Is that true or is that kind of just
2: a... I think what we've seen that uniquely people have different styles of learning, different styles of holding on to memories, different styles of um, being able to take something through thought, through auditory input, through visual input. And the more we're in touch with those senses, I think the more impactful for the brain. So for someone, I've had people who say, I can't visualize. I close my eyes and all I see is black. And if I keep doing it, I might see darkness where it's like, you know, think about your happy place, right, and all those cliches.
1: I have friends like with that too. Isn't it called right. ag-something?
2: i not familiar with the I term, but something. I think there's definitely okay. something there that in many ways is, you know, neurological, probably trauma-based, yeah. psychological, right, all these things combined. But if we can enhance the sensory inputs, this is something that we're in the R&D of you know, bringing psychedelic therapy to the world, we're adding more sensory input, and before it was take away the visuals because that kind of makes things weird, especially with ketamine. But add really nice mm. soothing auditory. We're adding now aromatherapy, vibrational therapy. We're That's adding cool. uh, different kind of temperatures and seeing how that affects us. You know, to do cryo before to make sure that different senses are being hit because what we're learning is that the more sensory input. We receive mm-hmm. around something we want to program in our brain, the better it stores. So I would encourage mm-hmm. you to keep the visualizations going and just add any other sensory inputs you can think of when you're trying to reprogram the subconscious.
1: That is so Very supportive cool. to the body is the subconscious mind. Yeah. Yeah. I've been hearing a lot of people say that recently that feels so supportive to that. Yeah.
2: yeah, You know, the example of uh, an octopus where they don't have a central brain and their brain is kind of like spread all throughout their limbs. It allows them to use their, you know, their eight limbs to, to think, right. It's, it's a very different experience of life. In ways, I think we've lost that ability. We, we you know, our brains are getting bigger. Fast forward three thousand years, and they look like aliens with these big heads, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yep, yep, yep. And we're losing the sense that our nerves are all throughout the body, and so any sensory input is a connection to our brain. And this is where cryotherapy and sauna steam and EMDR mm-hmm. and aromatherapy, all of these things are healing and they're curative in ways that we're not, I think, giving enough attention to because we've only been taught therapy and meds in my industry. And so these are a lot of the wrinkles that we're trying to unveil as we're iterating and improving the psychedelic experience and just in general about yeah. psychedelics, the meditative experience.
1: I got to go rewatch my octopus teacher on Netflix yeah. now.
2: Yeah. That's what I'm
1: going to do tonight. <laughs> that one always makes me upset.
2: I can't believe you let it die. And spoiler alert, uh, sorry. I just...
1: <laughs> no, spoiler alert. But, but oh my gosh. It's always such a pleasure to learn from you. Oh my gosh. It's so lovely every time. I can't wait for you to come back again. I just like, again, admire your voice in this space so much. Mm-hmm. I think it's so needed and I'm so grateful for the work you're doing and for putting up with social media and getting the voice out there, (laughs) even when it's a little radicalizing and hard, like we need it. We need it. So thank Thank you you for doing it.
2: Thank you so much for the confirmation. I really am just trying to spread a voice of education in the mental health space. If anybody wants to learn more about their mental health or connect with a professional or just join a free support group, we're running support groups Um, where we co-facilitate with just different people who have a voice in their community, and we're bringing a mental health professional alongside them. We've got a support group with Drew Robinson who has an incredible story. He's an incredible person. And it's just an introduction to mental health, you know, like a monthly mental health checkup. It's free. Anybody can sign on. We also have one in the recovery space, a recovery support group, myself and Darren Waller. Just go to anywhereclinic.com slash groups. You can sign up to join for free. Um, so we really are trying to change the medical model get away from just yeah. all right well can you afford this if you can't then we can't treat you or if your insurance doesn't cover it we can't be there for you we're really trying to open up more free outlets to bring
0: community together
1: thank you for and all please that you do. go to the episode notes we'll have everything yes. all linked your links and everything yeah available
0: thank you dr thank Sam. you thank,
2: thank you about so much How's it going, y'all? It's Aaron. Don't let your Monday suck. Don't have those Sunday scaries. I'm tired of everybody waking up in the week saying, ah, shit, it's Monday. You know what goes down? TMV releases every week on Mondays. Make sure you rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're watching YouTube, yes, TMV has a YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and ring that noty bell and never miss a thing. And also, join the TMV familia by joining the Thoughts May Vary Patreon and by following at Thoughts May Vary pod on Instagram and TikTok. Thank you for listening.
1: Great. There
2: you go. Thanks,
1: you Gotcha.